People on temporary visas are not allowed to work or invest in the sex industry in New Zealand. Section 19 of the PRA restricts them from doing that. So that means even if someone is legally allowed to work in other industries, so if they say on a student visa, which grants them the right to work for a certain number of hours per week, or if they're on a working holiday visa, they can work in, they are not allowed to work in the sex industry. That's a breach of their visa conditions. Kia ora and welcome to PhD Unpacked, a coalesce produced podcast where we make academic research more accessible by interviewing the authors of compelling and contemporary New Zealand PhDs. I'm Kimberly and I'll be the narrator. On this episode, we are joined by the wonderful Dr. Gwyn Easterbrook-Smith, PhD alumnus of Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, and author of the 2018 thesis titled, Illicit Drive-Through Sex, Migrant Prostitutes and Highly Educated Escorts, Productions of Acceptable Sex Work in New Zealand News Media, 2010 to 2016. Gwyn is a researcher, teacher, writer, commentator, and performer. To date, they are best known for their work on the New Zealand sex industry. Gwyn has also written a significant number of academic articles in the last few years on many different topics ranging from sex work to productivity during the COVID-19 pandemic. You'll hear from me a few times later on in the episode, but for now, I'll drop you into the interview with our host, James. Before we get into your research, could you start off by telling us briefly how and why you ended up writing this PhD specifically? Yeah, um, so my background is as a media studies scholar, and while I was doing uh, parts of my undergrad and my initial postgrad, um, I was working as a sex worker, and being a media studies person, obviously, I was looking at the media representations and looking at them with, I guess, like a media studies lens, uh, and... The longer that I worked in the sex industry, the more I was looking at a lot of these representations and realising that there were gaps or that the way that things were represented weren't didn't necessarily align with what a lot of I was seeing in, directly in the work. Um, and I became really interested in where these gaps were and where these representations didn't really line up with reality. Uh, and I thought that it would be an interesting thing to kind of embed myself in for three years, which is basically what the PhD is. It's something that you're happy to sit and think very long and hard about for quite a long time. Um, I guess the other thing that I'd probably point out there about a media studies approach to this question and to this topic is that part of the reason that I think media representations and how we see sex work talked about in the media is so important is that a lot of people don't know sex workers personally. So their ideas about the industry are formed in large part from these media representations. It's not a community that they necessarily have a lot of contact with. Um, and quite a lot of the, and this is sort of repeated in a lot of other um, in a lot of other literature as well, my hunch here is that it's actually a little bit more complicated than this. And it's not that people don't know sex workers, it's that they don't know that they know sex workers. The media representations historically have often been quite bad, they've been quite stigmatising. People's ideas about sex workers are therefore based on those poor representations. Um, sex workers or former sex workers around them hear the things that they say about sex workers, decide that they're not a safe person to tell, that person continues thinking that they don't know any sex workers and you wind up with this kind of cycle of these um, reductive or stigmatising representations just continuing with that still informing people's ideas. 
for for you with your your history of sex work and deciding to embark upon this, I guess it, it obviously must be a, a piece of personal research, right? Because so clearly it is it is something that you have an understanding of, and I and I imagine within the academia, did you find is is it is it rare for there to have been people writing about the sex industry in New Zealand that actually had experience of it when you were coming to the decision to make that PhD um, journey, I suppose? There are a few other people who are coming to academic research into the sex industry from this insider perspective, but there aren't a lot of us, and I think there were even fewer when I began the research in late 2014. Uh, And I didn't really start talking openly about being a sex worker until I was in maybe the second-ish year of the PhD, so it was something that I thought about for quite a long time, because it's something that you can't really take back, and it can sometimes still be quite a kind of uh, discrediting identity, I suppose. But it does, I guess, also make the work that I'm doing really personal to me. Um, And I think it sort of a desire to make sure that it's useful to the community that I'm part of and that I come from is a real driving force behind a lot of the research. Uh, But also, obviously, there are some parts of the industry where I'm still an outsider to it. I have experience in some parts, I don't in others. There are some experiences which... um, which are not my own. And so I guess there will always be kind of levels of insider and outsider status when you're working in an area like this. And I suppose coming to the PhD and the research from that sort of media studies perspective, a great bulk of your work, which we'll, which we will get into, is actually analysing uh, different forms of media sort of almost separate from your, your yourself. Fundamentally, it is how are other people uh, analyzing this industry and you as a as a researcher and someone that has lived experience being able to approach that and, and I guess break down well how does that align with my experience and other people who have lived experience within within the community I suppose yeah yeah so looking at um, the kind of the shapes of the representations which start to emerge and the narratives which come through again and again and again and I think having often having that insider status meant that there were Points which I could identify perhaps a lot faster than someone who didn't have that experience, um, which probably just practically saved me a bit of time in some of the analysis, um, or just a greater familiarity with um, the interaction between different parts of the industry and being able to untangle what the power dynamics there were sometimes. Gwyn's PhD focuses on exploring the idea of acceptability. Are there some forms of sex work that the New Zealand media frames as more acceptable than others? To understand the parameters and context of this investigation, we need to know more about two things. The first is the Prostitution Reform Act of 2003, and the second is about the different kinds of sex work that exist in Aotearoa. New Zealand passed the Prostitution Reform Act, or PRA, in 2003, and Lobbying for that went on for a very long time. It was driven mostly by our advocacy um, group, the NZPC. They got Ministry of Health funding for health promotion in the late 1980s, and from then onwards were pushing for decriminalisation. The bill passed by one vote, so it was 60 to 59. There was one um, MP who absented themselves from the vote, so it was a very, very close margin there. Um, And it decriminalised sex work, except for for migrant sex workers um, 
who are still not covered by the protections of decriminalisation. Um, and there are a multitude of different ways of um, legislating sex work, but decriminalisation is the one which produces the best health, health outcomes for sex workers. So it's the one that's preferred um, by sex work advocacy organisations um, and it's the one that we are fortunate enough to have here. New Zealand was also the very first place to pass decrim on a national level. There are some other places um, that had it before us. I believe New South Wales and Australia did from the early 90s. Um, but we're often used in international comparative research because of this quite unusual um, legislative structure. And so that was also part of the kind of motivation for the research is... I was interested in seeing what happens to representations of sex work once it's no longer a crime um, and once it's being understood in terms of work. Uh, do we actually see a shift in the representations? Um, so decriminalisation helps with destigmatisation, but it isn't by itself a destigmatisation. Other things need to happen alongside it. There are, as you said, there are lots of different ways of doing sex work. Um, it's quite common for people to move through different models of working during their careers in the industry or to work in a couple of different ways simultaneously. Um, one of the kind of most apparent differences, I suppose, would be between street-based sex work and indoor sex work. Uh, and then within indoor sex work, you've got a lot of different models there as well. So you would have different kinds of managed sex work. So you might have, uh, say, walk-in parlours, which... A customer walks in and would then meet whoever's on shift who would like to meet them and decide if they'd like to book from there. Agencies where they'll typically look at people's profiles online on the agency website, call and book ahead, so appointment-based. Uh, and then you'll have independent workers who typically will also work on an appointment basis. One of the big differences in the different kinds of indoor sex work that people do is the perception of how many clients a sex worker sees. So there is often... Um, and I'm, I'm saying perception there because it doesn't necessarily have any bearing on the number of clients that any individual sex worker might see. But there's often an idea that parlour work is lower paid and higher volume. So you earn less per client, but you see more clients. Agency work, you see fewer clients, but you earn more per client. Uh, and I think that that's often one of the ways that that um, acceptability starts to be kind of meted out and, and divided up. I wanted to ask you about I guess, terminology and specific language, because there's this, this fascinating piece uh, within, I guess, the first third of your PhD that, that analyzes uh, different terminology referring to people who work in the sex industry, particularly the the divide between this idea or this terminology of, of sex worker versus this, this term prostitute, which I guess some people uh, would understand to be a quote-unquote correct terminology or incorrect terminology but I think this is a great place to start as we consider uh, terminology and, and and words as we move into thinking about how perhaps uninformed people consider the sex work industry in New Zealand. Could you talk a little bit about I guess those two terms and and why it's important to educate people about how they how they differ and, and weight? Yeah so Sex work and sex workers um, are terms which were coined by, I believe, by Carol Lee in the late 1970s. And they're the ones that are preferred by sex work advocacy organisations and sex workers themselves because they foreground the fact that it's a job. Um, prostitute, in comparison, has... Uh, it has a lot of negative connotations. Um, it has a kind of secondary meaning to, I think... 
Gail Federson talks about this as just to sort of sell one's talents in a disreputable way. It's got ideas about dishonor attached to it. It's also a legal term. So the use of the term prostitute often carries quite a lot of moral stigma. It carries quite a lot of um, negative weight. Whereas sex worker, uh, in contrast, is it describes what, what we do at work. Um, it describes what the job is. It also determines the register that you'll talk about it in. So in using that term, you're right from the outset saying, okay, we're talking about labour issues here. We're talking about workplace rights, occupational safety and health. It, se- it sets the tone for the conversation, I think. And as you say, I guess uh, I've wrote about, uh, I said a note from your PhD about the implications of, of labour and, and skills required. And I guess that key word work mm. is so crucial in, in this analysis of the sex work industry in New Zealand, that it is uh, a labour issues and and everything that we talk about should be viewed through that lens of of work, as you say. So let's move, I guess, into the bulk of your of your research, which is these these three chapters, which look on, I guess, three different events or, or subject matters and media texts within those. And those three chapters are uh, chapter four, street sex work in South Auckland. Uh, chapter five, uh, migrant and student sex workers, and chapter six, independent and agency sex workers. And I suppose as we analyze all three of these, we'll in general discuss this idea of who is deemed accessible, uh, acceptable and who is deemed non-acceptable within the, within the media landscape. But let's start with chapter four, because it's the, I guess, the first one that comes within your research. Street Sex Work in South Auckland is the title of the chapter. Can you tell us a little bit more about the context surrounding uh, this event and the media text? What was going on at the time within New Zealand and specifically uh, South Auckland that brought this discussion and this focus within the media to the fore? Uh, Yes, so there were attempts from 2005-ish onwards um, through until about 2014, uh, I believe, to pass local bylaws which would have restricted where street-based sex workers in South Auckland were able to work. So the idea was to try and move them away from the Hunter's Corner area and towards industrial areas. Um, And because of the progress and the debates around those bills, it kept kind of returning to the media. There was a group uh, from South Auckland who called themselves Papatoitoi Residents Reclaiming Our Streets, who also pushed this forward hugely in the media, and they um, would often make statements to the media. At one point, a pamphlet about street-based sex work in the area was released. So there were a lot of things that kept kind of pulling it back up to the top of the headlines, basically. And so I guess it's worth pointing out that within the PRA, the Prostitution Reform Act in 2003, what the uh, Papatoitoi residents reclaiming our streets and, and people trying to make these changes to the bylaws, that went against what was in that 2003 Act, correct? This idea of, of limiting where people were able to conduct their work. That was running against what had been... Uh, described in the 2003 PRA, is that correct? Yes, yeah, and that was essentially one of the core arguments against it, was that it went against the spirit of the PRA. It was doing something that was going to be undermining the safety and the rights of of the sex workers. Um, So street-based sex work 
uh, I know that when we spoke before we started recording today, you mentioned that this is it's a it's a big chapter in the thesis, and that's reflective of how much coverage there is in the media. But it's not really reflective of how many people do street based sex work. There, it's a very small proportion of the industry, um, but it's a part of the industry which often gets returned to as a kind of visual shorthand for other parts of the industry, um, and you will often see stories about other kinds of sex workers illustrated with images of street-based sex workers. And um, particularly, uh, sometimes stories about migrant sex workers who explicitly are working indoors in brothels will be illustrated with images of street-based sex workers. And often that will be uh, next to headlines with things like illegal prostitutes or illegal brothels. and so you're seeing there this kind of reassociation of street-based sex work with illegality and criminality. And I think it means that a lot of the stigma in the industry slides really heavily onto this very small group of people. Um, and I think that that's probably a useful place to start in terms of street-based sex workers as being the kind of focal point for a lot of people's um, hatred of sex workers, basically, because they are so visible. Which I guess if you applied that lens to any not anything else within the media, but uh, uh, take a completely different community or industry. I, I'm trying to think of an example here. I guess we would think it very strange if there was an article about lawyers that used examples of people that were a- accountants. You know, you would simply say, well, this this media representation doesn't make any sense. They're not, they're not the same. And I suppose what you're saying about um, the, uh, the, I guess maybe homogenizing is the, the right word of, of a, a poor and an uneducated presumption that people who are employed and work in different ways within the sex industry sort of operate in a similar way. And that is simply not the case, you know, using street-based sex workers as uh, the you know, the representative for, say, migrant sex workers or vice versa. Actually, it's just really poor media work, right? It doesn't make sense to to use one as an example for the other because they, they um, are not the same. No, they're, they're different ways of working. I mean, there are... Um... I guess I want to be careful there not to claim that they're completely different because mm-hmm. there are there are lots of crossovers in different areas of the industry, but it's more that street-based sex work becomes just this, yeah, this kind of lazy visual shorthand, basically. Um, something I'd encourage people to do next time they see some video footage or a photo of street-based sex work used to illustrate um, a story about sex work, almost inevitably this will be outdoors, there'll be cars in the picture. How old are the cars? How long have they been using that footage for? Um, that's another thing to kind of look out for. Once these images are in the industry, and often they're taken without the permission of the people in them, they'll stay in rotation for a long time, decades sometimes. One thing that I thought was really interesting about this chapter was this this discussion of, of work and legitimacy of of, I guess, labor. And you talk about how uh, the PROS would frame the street sex workers as not being legitimate work when it benefited them, but then completely flipping that and, and framing it as work when it benefited their narrative. And I guess that so clearly revealed the, the flaws and, and how the people that were advocating for these bylaws and, and being against street-based sex work really had massive holes in their argument about what street street sex work was. Do you want to talk about, I guess, this concept of of labor and skill as we have spoken about within even just the definition and using the terminology of street-based sex work, how that kind of came to a fore within that? And and I guess there's one fascinating 
element within the chapter you're talking about how the uh, PROS had issues with this idea of, of people driving in from outside of the community to sort of, I guess, c come into the area and then not from our community and therefore this is problematic, which as you say in the, the research in any other industry would be considered commuting to work, which I just, I just kind of cackled at. I was like, this, of course, it doesn't make any sense. It's, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that example up because I feel like that's such a perfect encapsulation of so many of those arguments. Um, they're so bad faith, they're so unwilling to apply these lenses of work. Um, they, you could also see quite often coming through, um, there was an expectation that the sex worker is always working. So again, there wasn't an understanding of it as work as something that you, you aren't doing it all the time you finish your shift you finish um whatever hours you've decided you're working and there was often an assumption that if someone who a member of PROS thought was a sex worker was out in public they must be working and I think that that kind of um failure to acknowledge it as a job is actually at the root of that too because um sex worker becomes understood as something that you are it's not understood as something that you do um, and it also means that any other identities that you hold um, aren't aren't considered legitimate or aren't taken into account. Um, and you would see this often in the way that sex workers would be kind of pitted against these other identities. Like I think there's one article where they talk about um, mums dropping their kids off to swim training. And there's actually no... There's no reason why a sex worker may not also be the mother dropping her kids off to swim training. Sex workers aren't just sex workers. It's it's a job. It's not a it's not the whole of your life. And I know? guess that is tied into this this whole discussion about the attempts were made to and these are your words discursively position street sex workers as outside the community in which they work. And I suppose that they live generally this idea of um, the the PRO as framing people who work in the industry as this kind of complete other entity in a way that wouldn't align with sort of any other job within anyone that worked in South Auckland. It just providing this sort of framework that uh, I guess was unique in a way that it, it felt to me reading work they were kind of making things fit to try and mm. fit their narrative and actually so much contradiction across what was being argued, right? Mm, exactly. Um, and, yeah, the construction of street-based sex workers as being outside of their community, as being kind of these intruders into the community, rather than acknowledging, yeah, they live there, they work there, they do their grocery shopping there, they'd often be produced as these kind of um, economically non-productive citizens, um, although obviously they're contributing to the local economy, both as workers, but also as people who are, yeah, going and buying things in the local shops. They're, they're, in a, they're part of that community and trying to construct them otherwise was um, was really apparent in a lot of that, um, the narratives. You can even see it in the name of um, PROS. They've branded themselves as residents um, and reclaim, reclaiming our streets really clearly positions them in kind of opposition to the street-based sex workers um, who they think have taken something that is rightfully theirs in, in that, in that um, composition, I suppose. When you talk about the PROS's deliberate use of language and dehumanising street sex workers and the way in which the language was often reported, sometimes unchallenged by the news media texts, and in relation to that, um, the pervasive transphobia and transmisogyny that 
existed within the news media discourse, I'd like to just read a quick paragraph out from the chapter because I think it will help frame the context and then I'd love to get your thoughts on it. A recurrent theme within media text analysed is the overt use of trans misogynistic language about street sex workers and the construction of transgender workers as being implicitly dangerous, offensive and threatening purely because of their transgender status. Multiple texts discussing transgender sex workers misgender them and use inaccurate and outdated language or slurs against transgender workers. In some cases, this occurs within reported speech from interviewees, but in others, it is included in the body of media texts or present in the headlines. So, I guess, what could you talk about what you found in terms of this, the specificity of language that was used both from people who were advocating for these bylaws and, I guess, I'd say the irresponsible media representations of them? Because language seems really, really important in terms of how you analyse the media discourse that was going on, right? Yeah, the language that was used would really, really frequently be incredibly transmisogynistic. Um, just outright use of slurs, um, sort of language which would attempt to construct the street-based sex workers as being dangerous and to use that um, as a justification for arguing that they shouldn't be allowed uh, around the Hunter's Corner area. And I think that one of the things which you see happening here is transgender workers... Within street-based sex work, you see a disproportionate number of trans workers, but that the frequency with which trans workers were discussed in the news media texts is far greater than that than that proportion um, if you look at the kind of demographic makeup of that part of the industry. So I think that actually what you were seeing there is that, deliberately or not, um, I think there was a realisation from people who wanted the street-based sex workers out of that area, that they could use transphobia as a kind of additive to sex work stigma, that they could um, smuggle in a lot of sex work stigma through that really transmisogynistic language and rely on people's transmisogyny or people's transphobia to um, sort of build support for this anti-sex worker um, rhetoric as well. So I think you're seeing there that this group of sex workers who were also marginalised along that axis um, are being kind of, they're being sort of doubly, um, I guess, attacked in a lot of these, in a lot of these reports. They're, they're made additionally kind of vulnerable through this. And when we think about, uh, I guess, street-based sex work as opposed to uh, the varying forms of indoor uh, sex work. You make a clear point in your research that there is a a, a stronger proportion, and and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here, but that often uh, trans sex workers have to or or find themselves with less opportunities for their sex work because of the the hiring practice of brothels or otherwise. And you spend a fair bit of time in your PhD analyzing how politicians sort of took this angle of, uh, well, we, we kind of want to get sex workers off the street and get them inside because it will be safe for them and safe for everyone else. And a lot of that was kind of ignorant rhetoric that didn't understand things like uh, brothel hiring practices and also, I guess, other elements like the, the money and autonomy and business decisions that surrounded why people would choose to be street-based sex workers, right? 
Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. There was a um, recurrent kind of narrative theme of um, people trying to claim that this was, you know, for their own good. We just think that we just think that all the street-based sex workers should just move into brothels. We just think they'd be much safer there. We'd just like them somewhere that we can't see them indoors. It's but but it's for their own good, sort of thing. Um, and that would almost universally ignore the fact that yeah, brothels typically don't hire trans workers. Um, at the time that the that all of these texts were coming through, I don't think there were any brothels that would hire transgender women. Um, and so the options for trans workers are to work independently, which is expensive. You need somewhere to work from. You need to be able to set up ads. Um, you need to work well. You need um, a work phone and phone credit, that kind of thing, in order to be able to make appointments with clients, or you can do street-based sex work. Um, there just aren't as many options there. Uh, and yeah, there are other reasons that people would prefer not to work in brothels. Maybe they don't, they find shift fees, paying half of their income to the house to be something that they don't want to deal with. There are often minimum shifts that you have to do. Sometimes brothels will um, withhold people's earnings until some arbitrary payday. So if you're going out to do sex work because your rent is due tomorrow and you're $100 short, uh, street-based sex work is probably going to be able to help you remedy that issue a lot faster than doing a shift as a brothel will. Which is ultimately to say that there are reasons why uh, sex workers choose specifically to be street-based in, in individual in circumstances, maybe in extended circumstances. And that brings us back to this whole point that you make within this chapter and this as a whole, that within viewing this as, as a labor issue and a work issue, the the attempt to, I guess, ban street-based sex workers from some areas infringed on the right of workers to determine their own working conditions and the hours and the implication from politicians and otherwise that, oh, well, we should just move all sex workers inside, completely ignored that there were fundamentally reasons why people would choose to operate their own uh, self-employed business for specific reasons, which again, within any kind of other context would be seen as completely improper and infringing on people's rights to, to choose how they run their employment. But within this specific scenario, it's kind of overlooked or deemed uh, not important enough by politicians and otherwise, which if we viewed it through lots of other industries would be com completely shot down, right? Yes. And this happens, I mean, this happens obviously with street-based sex workers, but you actually see it coming through in a lot of the other representations as well. Um, not to jump too far forward in the discussion, but one of the other areas that this happens is when you look at coverage of indoor sex workers, um, where there is often an assumption that the best way to work is to not do too much sex work. That if you're really, really good at it, you should see hardly any clients. And I find that fascinating because, again, yeah, as you say, like you would struggle to find any other industry where people outside the industry would look at it and be like, wow, $400 now, gosh, I hope you don't work too much. You really shouldn't work too much, rather than being like, oh, wow, you know, if if you are able to command that per hour, why would you not see as many clients as you are comfortable seeing each day? Um, and you can see that it still holds this kind of, um, there are still a lot of ideas there about sex workers as not being suitable to make choices about their own lives, not being the experts in their own lives, um, or doing sex work kind of accidentally um, rather than kind of making choices uh, based on the options which are actually 
feasible and actually available to them, not the ones which exist in the imagination of people who are telling them how they ought to work. Let's, I guess, shift away from from that chapter and, and move mm. into your next kind of focus event, which is the chapter titled uh, Migrant and Student Sex Workers. Can you, I guess, again, give us a little context about this this chapter? Like, the, I guess there's this coalescence of of people specifically not granted the right to decriminalize sex work within the 2003 uh, PRA legislation and a very certain sporting event hosted by New Zealand in 2011 as kind of this backdrop framework that that engages with that. But could you give us a little bit of context about this, this chapter and I guess the event that surrounds it in the media articles? Yes, so migrant sex worker, people on temporary visas are not allowed to work or invest in the sex industry in New Zealand. Section 19 of the PRA restricts them from doing that. Uh, so that means even if someone is legally allowed to work in other industries, so if they say on a student visa, which grants them the right to work for a certain number of hours per week, or if they're on a working holiday visa, they can work in. They are not allowed to work in the sex industry. That's a breach of their visa conditions, um, and that means that, as you said, they don't have the protections of decrim. Um, the intention behind that was that it was supposed to. Uh, prevent trafficking and prevent exploitation and research has found that in fact it doesn't it's not effective in those ways um, it places migrant workers at a higher risk of exploitation um, because if uh, their boss say is forcing them to work longer hours than they want to or um, trying to pay them less than was agreed they don't have the same same kind of legal comeback that um, other sex workers do because they're working in breach of their visa conditions. Um, one of the events which a lot of this centred around was the Rugby World Cup in 2011. Um, and there was, as anyone who was paying attention to any media around that time would probably recall, a lot of interest in the Rugby World Cup. Um, and it would often be used as this kind of temporal marker when talking about sex work. So there is a very popular idea that there is, whenever there is a large sporting event, that there is a huge influx of sex workers. And this is not unique to the Rugby World Cup. This happens with World Cups uh, all over the world. Um, this kind of huge number of stories which promote this idea. But then research has found that it, that doesn't really hold up. You don't have tens of thousands of sex workers descending on a city because there is going to be a large sporting event there. Um, and the way that this happened, the way that this was talked about was really interesting, I think, because again, you saw this kind of shifting figure of the sex worker. So you were speaking just before about how with street-based sex work, we see it moving um, very fluidly between being a type of work and a type of not work, depending on what is most rhetorically useful at that point in time. Often with uh, discussions of migrant sex work, you would see domestic sex workers being constructed as these... Um, respectable representative figures um, who were part of this kind of good like host nation status and in, in other news media which kind of flowed through over the following years you'd sometimes contingently see the domestic sex worker being figured as a type of worker whose work was legitimate enough for it to be um, like quote-unquote like threatened by migrant workers um, so as long as it was useful for 
perpetuating anti-migrant narratives, the domestic sex worker was allowed to be a real worker. Uh, and I find that really interesting, that it's a, it's a real... It's so contingent and it's so okay, you can occupy this subject position as long as it's useful for this other argument that we're using to advance these other marginalizations. Um, and you saw that coming through quite a lot in this. Um, you would often see sort of, again, really obviously really openly anti-migrant sentiments being perpetuated uh, about migrant sex workers. Um, sentiments which, um, yeah, have been identified and roundly critiqued when used against other groups of workers, but they continued to be used against migrant workers for a, a very long time. Gwyn's research highlights a clear hypocrisy in how the New Zealand media portray sex workers. There are two clear imaginaries used. The first is the idea of the vulnerable sex worker who is in need of protection and saving. And the second is the devious, manipulative sex worker taking advantage of our society. If this all sounds familiar, it's probably because this label binary is quite similar to how the media portrays refugees, as explored in our episode with Dr. Natalie Slade, which you should listen to next if you haven't already. Not only are these sex worker portrayals problematic in and of themselves, they are constantly used interchangeably by the media, based on whichever label suits any given article at any given time. The sex workers would move through, often through both of those, or back and forth between those two um, different, different imaginaries, I guess. Um, vulnerable sex workers, the, the kind of vulnerable sex worker who needed paternalistic protection would quite often be the international student sex worker. Um, and it was this idea that people were being, you know, they were being tricked into the industry or they were being kind of, I think the word lured was used a couple of times in articles um, that, you know, people didn't know what they were getting into and that they needed, it still carries obviously this idea that the sex industry is inherently dangerous and damaging and that nobody could possibly... Um, be making an informed choice to work in it, looking at all of their options and going, this is the best one for me. Um, and it assumes that um, that the international students uh, needed to be kind of protect, protected from their own decisions here. Uh, and then at the, other, at the other end of that, you would see this kind of devious sex worker um, who was often constructed as being... Um, a little bit older or as being maybe a kind of career sex worker who was trying to um, like trick her way into the country. Um, the way that section 19 is enforced is also worth pointing out here because although anyone who is here on a temporary visa is not allowed to work in the sex industry, the way that that is enforced in practice um, is really racialized. It is mostly Asian women who are stopped at the border on suspicion of doing sex work. It has mostly been Asian women who are deported um, for doing sex work. So that, I think, also comes through in a lot of the media texts. They tend to be the ones who receive the bulk of the attention. Um, and I think it can create a situation where there's an assumption that all migrant sex workers are also Asian sex workers, and also that all Asian sex workers are also migrants, and clearly neither of those things are true. Like, there's a lot of exotification and stereotyping going on, particularly around Asian sex workers. I think there is one example that I talk about in the chapter where the author gives this 
fairly long discussion which purports to be of the interaction between a sex worker and her client that includes lots of detail about her like pouring him a cup of oolong tea and she's both being I mean the detail about the type of tea is clearly also pandering to this kind of um, exotification discourse and it's also her being really subservient to the client um, and then it goes on to kind of talk about her in these very like disempowering ways um, and I think that it is, is again really relying very heavily on a lot of other like racialized stereotypes to add to these ideas about the vulnerable victimized sex worker as well. Let's move into I guess the, the final chapter which uh, is titled Independent and Agency Sex Workers that I would I be right in saying it, it kind of exists as a bit of a counterpoint to the other two as we think about how the media uh, purports the sex work industry and those that are deemed more acceptable than than others. Focusing on media text, dealing with these independent agency sex workers, what did you find within that that chapter that I guess presented a different angle on how this certain section of the sex work industry was portrayed in comparison to the street-based sex worker and or the migrant sex industry worker? Yeah, so agency and independent workers, something that was notable about these stories was that they didn't tend to cohere around any particular kind of news event. The story was that there were sex workers who earned quite a lot of money and enjoyed their jobs. That was that was the story, basically. And there are a couple of agencies who would reoccur over and over again uh, within these texts. And the way that they were talked about was so different to the way that street-based sex workers and migrant sex workers were discussed. The language that was used about them was really different. Um, they'd usually be called sex workers, not prostitutes, or if they weren't called sex workers, they'd be escorts, um, or they'd be courtesans. Uh, so the kind of language which was also used on the websites of these agencies. Uh, and I found that detail about the language being similar across the websites and in these media texts interesting, because I think that a lot of the texts start to serve an advertorial function at that point. Um, the other thing that would come through a lot would be ideas about the workers not seeing very many clients, what other identities the workers belonged to, which would often kind of um, emphasise their belonging to sort of very normative, um, more socially acceptable groups, uh, ideas about how much they enjoyed the work, um, that would often really be emphasised. Um, and I think all of those things were... They contributed both to producing this group of sex workers as more acceptable, but I think they also did it in a way which continued to shift the stigma about the industry onto other groups. It didn't dissipate it, it just moved it elsewhere, basically. Sometimes it almost seemed as though there was kind of a timer that was going off, like, oh, it's been 12 months since we did one of those. New article. Um, <laughs> I think a couple of them were attached to the 10-year anniversary of the passing of the PRA. One of them, from memory, started off with... Um, an introduction about a new agency opening and it was really hard to read that as anything but advertorial um, like you know sunlight streams through the through the windows onto the French linen of blah 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 the newest agency in Wellington okay in the news <laughs> um, if I was on trade me you'd be paying hundreds of dollars to advertise that that business and that but you can't advertise it on trade me and this is I think where the advertorial thing comes in is that um, the PRA restricts where brothels and sex workers can advertise. So they can only advertise in the classified section of the newspaper. Um, they're not allowed to advertise in theatres, uh, in 
magazines, uh, on the radio, on the television, um, you're very limited in where you can advertise for clients. You're also really limited in terms of where you can advertise for workers. And if you're someone, and a lot of these agencies, um, and this is backed up by other research which has kind of come through recently and also something that I sort of knew coming into it as, a, as an insider to the research, a lot of these agencies won't hire people who have worked in other parts of the industry, have worked for other businesses. They want their agency to be the first place that this person works. And if you're someone who is in your early 20s, you've never worked in the sex industry before, perhaps you don't know anyone personally who works in it, how are you going to figure out that there are jobs going here? Um, when I started working for an agency for the first time, I found one of these articles and that was how I found out about it. So it's, I mean, in at least one instance it's worked, but they can't advertise for jobs on Seek. They can't advertise jobs on Trade Me Jobs um, or Student Job Search. Uh, if they want to find new workers, they need to get, um, they need to get their name, they need to get their image out otherwise. And I think that that's what a lot of these media techs do, basically. And so it's so clearly in the interests of these owners, these managers, agency runners, whatever the correct terminology <clears throat> is for people that own and operate these these businesses. Of course, it's in their best interest to conduct these interviews with the media and paint the most beautiful sunlight streaming through the window image of of their their business. And so when these articles, I guess, present this mode or this medium of uh, sex work as being more acceptable, of course we need to ask questions about who is being interviewed. And, and most of the times it, uh, the owners and the operators, right? Not necessarily the people working in those parts of the industry. Yeah. So looking at those three groups, looking at the three groups that I looked at uh, for the thesis, vastly more sex workers were allowed to speak for themselves uh, when they were independent and agency workers. Hardly any migrant sex workers, hardly any street-based sex workers were spoken spoken to. They were almost always spoken about. Um, independent and agency workers were most likely to be asked for their own opinions about their jobs, but they were then outnumbered by managers. So management's take was being, was being accepted as the kind of final word. Um, and again, this is, I guess, something that I would encourage people to, to think about generally when looking at media about sex work. Would other jobs be talked about in this way or would you be suspicious if other jobs are talked about in this way? Um, like you said that you've got hospitality experience. If every single article about HOSPO, and I know that this does actually happen, a lot of them spoke only to the managers, would there be some things that the managers are highlighting that the actual like floor staff would perhaps dispute? Probably. Local restaurant <laughs> owner talks about how great said restaurant is. Yeah, I mean, you would just, as you say, they do exist out there, but yeah. through other framework, we would go, well, who are we getting or if all they're talking, the story here? Or if they're talking about the work conditions in their restaurant, again, they're going to be talking about it in a particular way, especially if they're looking for staff, in a way that is maybe going to be a little different to how the staff members would describe it. Um, and that's not to kind of appeal to ideas about these, like, you know, terrible, awful, exploitative brothels, they're all, it's all, it's all awful. Um, it's more just, you know, it's a business. There are all, there are labour issues in businesses. Your interests are not identical to your bosses. And thinking about it as a form of work means being a little bit um, sceptical uh, of some of the things which managers are saying about their own businesses and thinking about what their kind of vested financial interest is there. Which within that element of the industry, this whole question of legitimacy of work and a job and business and labour is 
clearly on 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 a different playing field than some of the other kinds of sex work that we were talking about earlier in and you know as we as we consider the independent agency uh, i'll say indoor um, medium of sex work to tie it back to uh that kind of flawed well everyone should work indoors because it'll be safer for them and better for them argument that's so flawed when looking at street-based sex work i thought it was really interesting that you did some research on uh I guess the, the description of the work is listed on some of the websites of these agencies and the very specific categories that most of the workers fit within in terms of their body size, their age and their ethnicity showed, and again this is in your word, given this evidence, the suggestion these agencies represent an informed choice is at best optimistic and at worst actively racist, classist, ageist, sizist and sexist. So when we think about this kind of this version of, of sex work, it's clearly not accessible to everyone, right? And as you analyze, I guess, these media texts looking at um, independent agency sex workers and, and sex work businesses to tie it back across to what you explore in the street-based sex work chapter, clearly there's there's not an in for everyone there. Mm. It couldn't be more clear when you look at the, the how those businesses operate. Yes, yeah, and the way that they would often be talked about... Um, the workers who, the people who worked there would be talked about in these really um, complementary terms, but in a way that was clearly intended to suggest that they were exceptional among sex workers. Um, I think one of the articles that I looked at talked about there being the new breed of sex worker who was confident and articulate and intelligent and this, you know, this kind of go-get-a-girl boss figure, um, and that this was the way that you should do sex work. If you had to do it, it still kind of belies this like deep mistrust and um, dislike of the industry. I think really, um, but yeah, these agencies aren't accept aren't accessible to most people. They won't hire most people. Um, they even say that in a lot of the news articles. They'll talk about only accepting five percent of the people who apply. Um, and I think that when you see them talked about as being a, the best way to work, which will make you figure you the closest to acceptability or respectability, and B, also often the kind of the safest way to work or the way where you, the clients you see will be the nicest or the most respectful or the most kind of considerate, then it almost produces this assumption that people who don't work in those ways should expect their clients to be a little bit crappy or a little bit um, or not respectful. And I think that that, um, like that's carries with it suggestions about who is entitled to respect, who is entitled to safety within the industry as well, I think. And ultimately, with that consideration of, you know, who is entitled to X, that kind of nicely mm. ties us into this this overarching question of, I guess, not necessarily who is entitled to the, 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 the moniker of uh, acceptable, but who is given that moniker mm. and who is not given that moniker. I guess to bring all of those those three chapters and those three events together within that research question of, you know, are certain uh, workers within the sex industry given acceptability status and not acceptability status? I mean, we've, we've 
clearly got to the answer that yes, there is a difference. Well, I guess when you think about those three, um, what was your ultimate kind of conclusion and takeaway when you kind of took a step back and near the end and you looked at those three? How could you, I guess, summarize your your findings and your takeaways as you thought about all of that media and all of those articles thinking about the sex work industry in New Zealand as a whole and who was granted uh, acceptable status and who is not? I think that, yeah, as, as you said, there are, really clearly there are differences between how different groups of sex workers are represented. And I think people's uh, relative proximity to other markers of kind of respectability um, or normativity determines how acceptable their sex work is going to be made. So if you're someone who is, say, middle class and tertiary educated and, um, and cisgender and Pākehā, for example, and you make it really clear that you don't do very much sex work and you're only doing it for a little while and you're doing it to like to save for the deposit on a house. You have access to all of those other privileges and so I think your sex work is less likely to be a fully discrediting identity. Um, and the further you move from all of those particular privileges which people might possess, um, the more likely it is that your sex work is going to be something that is used to discredit you. And sometimes that will be in combination with um, with transphobia or with racism, uh, with ageism, um, all sorts of other um, marginalisations, I think, get added into that sex work stigma. And that, I think, really affects people's differing experiences within the industry. To finish up, James asked Gwyn for any final takeaways things we should all be thinking about or looking out for in regards to the media's portrayal of sex workers. I think it's often quite useful for people to consider if when looking at a given representation of sex work, think about if other jobs would be talked about in that way, or if sex work has been held to unreasonable standards which other jobs aren't expected to meet. Um, I think that enjoyment of the work is often something that's used as a kind of proxy for is this work, is this quote-unquote good work? And I think that that's asking the wrong question. Um, And it often just produces additional work that the worker has to do in order to kind of prove that their job is something that is a job. Um, I guess the other thing that I would suggest is actually listening to what sex workers have to say and valuing their input above kind of third parties, above um, people speaking for them, and also making sure that there is a kind of diversity of voices there, that it isn't just the same handful of voices who represent very specific parts of the industry popping up again and again and again. Um, And I understand how and why that happens from a production point of view. It's much easier to get a comment from someone who you already have as a contact. Um, It's particularly if you're working to deadline. But I think that a diversity of voices, a diversity of opinions, a diversity of perspectives would really help to improve um, the overall kind of landscape of media about sex work. A big thank you to Gwen for coming onto PhD Unpacked and having a chat with us about their research. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Gwyn's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talk to Dr. Joanna McFarlane about her PhD, Intergenerational Attitudes and Experiences of Older Adults. You start to see someone sort of metaphorically die when they poo-poo 
technology because it's for kids and it's ridiculous and they're all on their phones and blah, blah, blah. to be alive needs to be open and curious about about what these younger generation, um, what's going on for them. I actually am sick of hearing old people say, you know, kids these days. I'm really, it's really, it just bugs me because it's, it's, it just shows they've shut down mm. in a way mm. and they're not open to what is actually going on because kids these days are fab. To keep up with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. As always, thank you to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. And thank you for listening. Ma te wa.